History Man, my own take on Putin and the past. And what is this war costing Russia? I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. But now, on with today's programme. As topics go, it's something of a hardy perennial, and ever since February, it's obviously acquired a distinctly kinetic new dimension. And that is how history is used to shape Russia's present, especially and primarily under the old regime. Now, way back when, in the dim and distant mists of time, in other words, in December 2021, pre-war, which seems to be one of the sort of new dividing lines, I gave a talk in Aalborg to a collection of um, history teachers, and I wanted to kind of revisit my notes from that and, again, see what has stood the test of less than a year, but also what in some ways has become much more magnified and evident as a result of what's going on in Ukraine. And look, I can't help but start with one of my favourite stories, which possibly is apocryphal, but to be honest, although I've never seen hard evidence, enough people who generally would not just uh, give in to a a story that was too good to check have confirmed this. So I will stick with it. And that, of course, is with the much despised statue of Peter the Great that looms from the river Moskva, 98 metres of it. I mean, it really is a phenomenally crass statue. It's one of Tseretelli's, uh, former Mayor Luzhkov's uh, sort of favourite sculptor, it seemed. And given Luzhkov's taste for the tasteless and the over-blinged out, we shouldn't be surprised. Anyway, there it was up in, erected in 1997. And the story, which I do love, is that in fact, this was actually a statue of Christopher Columbus. But given that Tseretelli hadn't managed to find any buyers for it, he managed to persuade Lushkov, swapped out the head, and lo and behold, Christopher Columbus became Peter the Great, father of the Russian Navy, atop a kind of rather contracted galleon. Now, this was sufficiently unpopular amongst the residents of Moscow that, in fact, the statue was in due course offered to the people of St. Petersburg, i.e. the people of the city that Peter the Great himself created. And they said, no, you're all right, thanks very much. So in this respect, Moscow, the city that, after all, Peter the Great despised sufficiently that he wanted to create a new capital, ends up stuck with it. And this is, in some ways, a particular representation, given that it probably is Christopher Columbus, of the old saying that Russia is a country with a certain future but an unpredictable past. The past is constantly being reinterpreted and, in some cases, reinvented. Now, look, 
let's be honest about this, because obviously all countries have all kinds of myths about themselves, and it's a very fruitful area to consider, to try and understand national character, national self-image and the like. But I suggest, and this is something that becomes a recurring theme in my book, A Short History of Russia, that for this country in particular, there are special reasons why the history is particularly complex and mutable. Now, maybe in part this is because of the lack of natural boundaries. That leads to the second one, which is that this is also not just a multicultural country, though it absolutely is. You know, we we forget that it's one of the also one of the largest Muslim countries in the world. It's not all onion domes after all. Um, But it creates this constant fluidity of an identity of what is Russia geographically, what is Russia culturally, ethnically, religiously, and so forth. But in addition, Russia's position has meant that it has often been juxtaposed and indeed locked in geopolitical competition with rather more powerful and not just technologically but culturally advanced countries. And that, over the time, has also left its mark. You know, How do you reconcile yourself with the fact that you feel like the perennial underdog? Sure, you may be a huge country and such like, But there will always be, whether it's the Mongols or whether it's going to be the Napoleonic French or the Swedes or the English or the Germans or whoever, the countries that probably have a technological edge over you, but also as a result probably also have or believe themselves or are believed to have some kind of a cultural edge. After all, it's worth noting that you know until really the, the late 19th century, it was still the norm that Russian aristocrats would speak French rather than Russian, or even then in some cases German rather than Russian. To, to speak Russian was in some ways déclassé. Russian in all its different and often mutually impenetrable dialects was... On the one hand, the language of the country, but also somehow the language of the people who didn't matter. So I think, you know, for all these reasons, Russia has long had not just a particular chip on its shoulder, but also reason and opportunity to constantly redefine itself. And you redefine yourself often through your history. And we've seen so many instances of this being done on a very deliberate level. You know, we could go back to 862, when, according to the prevailing mythology, which we all know is one of these lovely stories, is that uh, the Slavic people of what would become the realms of the Rus came together and appealed to the Varangians, the the, uh, Vikings, for a prince. You know, our land is rich and wide, but we have no order. Come, rule over us. And along came Rurik, who in due course would establish his dynasty, build the city of Novgorod and such like. Now, look, this Rurik almost certainly existed. He may, though we can't be sure, have been one Rorik of Dorstad, a Dane who'd been banished by Louis the Pious. And, you know, if you're being banished, why not just carve yourself out a new principality? But the point is, what's fascinating about this particular myth is that it turned what was almost certainly conquest, that whole variety of different Viking adventurers carved themselves out territories amongst the scattered Slavic tribes, establishing not just Novgorod, but also Kiev. But you spun that to give yourself agency. 
you have turned what was conquest into your decision to invite someone because of your interest. It's a, a very important, I think, sort of point to make is the degree to which by, by editing the history you actually manage to make yourself feel better about being who you are. And that's really important. But it also, in some ways, implies a certain degree of, I hesitate to say inferiority, but shall we say absence or lack. It's the fact that they actually had to reach out abroad to find what they needed, which in this case was a prince, which I'll, I'll come back to. Next particular example that I want to raise, 1380, the Battle of Kulikova. So for reasons I won't go into, actually while I'm, while I'm uh, providing plugs, you can read it in my Osprey book on the Battle of Kulikovo. Anyway, um, Dmitry Donskoy, Prince of Moscow, finds himself at a time when the Russians are still groaning under the Mongol yoke. I mean, it was never actually considered to be or even called the yoke at the time. Again, there's a certain degree of retrospective reinvention because actually the Mongols, they may have been phenomenally brutal conquerors, but actually their hand rested quite lightly on the territories after they conquered them, so long as they knew what was what. Donskoy, though, although having risen, I mean, his whole dynasty, Moscow indeed as a city, had risen as in, as in effect the primary quislings of the Rus, the people who were most able, assiduous, pragmatic and ruthless in working for the Mongols. But no, he now finds himself in a position where, willy-nilly, he will actually have to fight them under the current leader of the so-called Golden Horde, Mamai. And he gathers his hosts, and through some very hard fighting, and indeed some very cunning generalship, he actually manages to beat a larger Mongol force. And look, he is able to spin this as really a, a key moment whereby the city of Moscow, which, as I said, was in one way the, uh, the Mongols' primary agent amongst the Rus, instead becomes the focus of what we could think of as Russian nationalism or patriotism, as the spearhead of the move to, to free Russia from this yoke. And look, he was smart. He had amongst his retinue, not just a large number of merchants who were anticipated to then carry the story of his, his grand victory around the other cities of the Rus, but also he had an alliance with the Russian Orthodox Church, which was in many ways the Twitter, maybe if you're listening to this in the future, the Mastodon, and also the CNN of its day. And it was perfectly happy and willing to do Donskoy's business and broadcast this through the pulpit as precisely a, a, a moment of transition, the moment when, to use Putin's own later words in different contexts, Russia was lifted up off its knees. Now, the teeny tiny detail that this did not actually free Russia from Mongol domination, that Mamai's nemesis and successor, Tokhtamish, in, in a year's time would bring an army to sack and burn Moscow, that it will be another hundred years that the Russian princes were continuing to pay tribute to Sarai, the Golden Horde's capital, before the so-called grandstand on the Ugra River finally broke their hold. Well, that features much, much less in subsequent history. Donskoy understood the need for mythology, the need for creating the right history, and the power that could be found within it. So let's fast forward again. 1613, after Ivan Grozny, Ivan the Terrible's 
indeed terrible reign, which leads to the time of troubles, a rolling period of civil war, foreign invasion, depopulation and, and hunger. Desperate, realizing that they needed some kind of a, of a single leader, the, the boyars decide that this will be Mikhail Romanov, thus creating the Romanov dynasty. Now, remember that the underlying premise of the whole notion of being a Tsar was, of course, that you were a monarch by divine right. It's not often considered the degree to which, in effect, this whole dynasty, this dynasty that claimed to rule in the name of God, was actually selected by political wranglings amongst boyar families. But again, there's also the power of editing out the inconvenient bits of history. It's not that they just dis disappear it totally, but it just simply becomes de-emphasized. And therefore, we're happy to stick with this notion of a grand dynastic continuity that is smiled upon by the divine. Moving on, late 18th century. Peter the Great wasn't really interested in any of this kind of highfalutin myth-making and such like. He was a very pragmatic figure, a man of his hands. He wanted to build his navy, and for that he needed various skills and such like. He wanted to fight various wars. It was after his era, in the time of Catherine the Great, who, I mean, above all, I would consider her to be the Empress of Spin, because she again set out not just simply to assert Russia's place in the world through force of arms, although that absolutely did continue to happen under her reign, but also to basically create the image of Russia, in part at home, but above all abroad. You know, in particular, she kept up this uh, extensive correspondence with uh, sort of the great philosophers and thinkers of Europe at the time, knowing full well that they are, were not about to head to Russia to actually test the reality of what she was saying. And therefore she built this image of a Russia that was prosperous, a Russia that was reforming, a Russia that had essentially already managed to drag itself out of a neo-medieval despotism and was increasingly an enlightened absolutism. Now, in practice, it was a lot more absolutist that it was enlightened. But the point is, by doing this, she managed to create this sense that, crucially, Russia had become a European country. Now, look, my view is that Russia has always been a European country. That, yes, obviously, there was a crucial couple of centuries when, in some ways, it was locked away from many, though not all, of the cultural mainstreams and developments of Europe under the period of Mongol domination, but you know, we, we shouldn't assume that there was some kind of, I don't know if it's not Iron Curtain, um, that had actually locked Russia away from the rest of Europe at this time. There were still travelers, there were still emissaries and such like going back and forth. More significant, frankly, would be the fact that the agrarian revolution, its methods, its tools, could not really be applied so easily in Russia, which would mean that Russia would also be locked out largely of the subsequent industrial revolution. But anyway, the point is, though, that in fact, this is when, in a way, Europeans themselves started to accept and believe that Russia was a European country. And interestingly, one can even see this in the caricatures of Russia at the time. You know, Catherine the Great is almost always represented essentially as if she was just another European monarch, rather than being some fur-hatted savage 
as was often the way before. And then, well, the great October Revolution of 1917. Well, putting aside the fact that it wasn't really a revolution, frankly, it was a coup. It was a seizure of power by an exceedingly sort of ruthless and disciplined group of professional revolutionaries. It was more that it created this whole new age of, as the Bolsheviks, the Soviets would eventually put it as you know, one of historical inevitability, of the fact that there was now a new route, a new way in which the world could evolve and the idea that essentially it's just where are you on a spectrum that, as any good weak historian would say, sort of culminates in wherever Britain happened to be at the time, and others would say culminates in wherever France or America happened to be at the time, and in a way countries could, could just simply be measured along that single line. Well, now there was this notion that no, there was actually a whole new track that was created, and that it was in Russia that it was created. The fact that Karl Marx had never thought the revolution would start in Russia, the fact that Karl Marx rightly did not actually believe Russia was in a fit state for revolution, and that in his 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte, he sort of warns precisely against what happens if you try and have a revolution in a country that's not ready for it, and the answer is, is, is a tragic mistake, because you end up with a, a regime that has all the energies of revolution, but all the instincts of the pre-revolutionary autocracy, which is frankly a pretty damn good explanation of Stalin. But nonetheless, the, the point is, again, it, it created this whole new perspective on Russia as not just this backward laggard trying desperately to catch up and never quite managing it, but instead as being the vanguard of history, the country which actually broke through first and is clearing the path that other nations should be expected to follow. So look, there's been this constant um, you know, attempt to not just reinvent what's happening to Russia, but also to use that to say what Russia's place in the world is. And that's really quite distinctive. Because you know, many countries, as I say, have their national myths, but they don't necessarily elevate themselves to the position, and certainly not on such a sustained level, to the position of being somehow a benchmark for the world. And we see that now, I think, with, with Putin. You know, Putin clearly, you know, he needs a national mythology, and he has for a long time. In part, this is about his own status and his sense of legacy, you know, the fact that he does read history, even if he may not always understand it, and that he has this sense of himself in his place in history. You know, he's clearly got one eye on posterity. More importantly, it is about uniting a nation that frankly did lose its identity to some degree in the 1990s. At first, he legitimated himself with this notion of basically you keep out of politics and I'll make sure that everything is, works out for you and you'll be able to get a, you know, a brand new fridge freezer and an iPhone. But now that that's no longer something that can be guaranteed, you know, he needs something else. And particularly he needs something that can, on the one hand, continue to play to the strengths of his political base, which, for example, includes the Russian Orthodox Church, but yet does not exclude the large portions of his own population who are either not religious or, more to the point, may well be religious but not Russian Orthodox. So it has to be some kind of meta-narrative that is greater than just simply the story of the specifically Slavic Russian people. And that, through that, 
he hopes to be able to build himself some kind of new legitimating narrative. So what does he do? Well, obviously, he cherry-picks the bits he likes. Um, I still found, you know, there was a certain delight in going to the Russia, Maya Historia, Russia, my history or my story, um, multimedia history exhibition that started at the uh, Vedenka Exhibition of the Achievements of the National Economy, and you'd never believe that it was the Soviets who named it. But anyway, I mean, this very much represented a, a carefully selected, curated version of Russian history, one in which when Russia is divided, it is vulnerable, that it needs a strong central hand, in which case everyone is happy and, and secure, and that military glory is, you might say, part of Russia's greater patrimony. And it doesn't really matter if you're ethnic Russian or not. It doesn't matter if you were a Tsarist officer or a Soviet officer or a post-Soviet officer. You know, you were still, like it or not, part of this pantheon of national heroes. You know, it, it, it was unsubtle, but it was actually quite effective in its own words. And a key element of this was precisely to try and rekindle a sense of national pride. That again, I think the 1990s was a was a, in many ways a shocking period for Russia, not just because it was trying desperately and still hasn't really come to the terms with no longer being the heartland of a multi-ethnic superpower and land empire, but also at a time when all of a sudden it it seemed to surrender to the headlong dash to ape the worst of the West, or shall I say? to ape a caricature of the West, whether it was in terms of naked and arrant consumerism, uh, the you know, tacky pursuit of wealth no matter what, a sense that capitalism meant nothing more than buying and selling to make money without thinking about all the structures of trust and control that actually make capitalism work. You know, there was, I think, almost a, a shame-faced sense amongst Russians that they had lost themselves, they had sold their soul for a mess of pottage, and then turned out they even got rather less pottage than they were expecting in the 1990s. And therefore there is this attempt to kind of create something new when, in a way, Soviet nationalism no longer worked, built as it was around Marxism-Leninism, a state faith that had long since been discredited. And, you know, at a degree, you know, to a degree, this obviously meant a certain degree of political control, even thought control. You know, history moved from being an area of debate to an area of catechism. And what happened was that increasingly, you know, what had been actually often a very healthy and lively field became one in which there was a new dead hand of orthodoxy pressing down on, frankly, the throats of anyone who wished to say something else. I mean, Putin himself said that he wanted, you know, a story of Russia, a history of Russia, free of internal contradictions and double interpretations. Well, look, any historian knows that it is impossible and indeed positively unwelcome to try and create a history that is free of internal contradictions and double interpretations. It is constantly being questioned, challenged, reinterpreted. New evidence, new sources, new ways of looking at the existing ones are bubbling forth. What Putin wanted, as I said, was not real history. He just wanted an official story. 
And as a result of that, with the, with the increasing role of the state in trying to define what was historically acceptable and accurate, we had the rise of the history entrepreneurs, people who rushed forward to try and claim their bit of history and ideally, as a result, prosper, become famous, become rich or whatever. You had writers and pundits like the now increasingly infamous Dugin, who clearly sort of reached at that as a way of essentially trying to seize control of the bits of the debate that interested them. You had the Russian Orthodox Church, which again was, was involved in an attempt to try and thread its way through what has you know, frankly often been a distinctly problematic, if I can use that euphemism, past in terms of its role in supporting at times pogroms and such like, and its capacity to be the handmaiden of the Tsar, whether it was in the Romanov era or arguably in the Putin era. You had the armed forces, particularly you know, under Sergei Shoigu, trying to essentially use history as a way of demonstrating its relevance in a non-time of war to the Russian people, to build political alliances with, say, the Russian Orthodox Church, but also to create the kind of identity that would make soldiers proud to be soldiers, and perhaps most importantly, people want to sign up as volunteers. So you have things like this extraordinary khaki cathedral of the armed forces outside the Victory Park, again, you know, an another exhibition really designed to project military soft power. You know, you, you, you had quite an extensive campaign. Again, Shoigu, he may not know much about military reform, but by goodness, he does know his PR. We had business. You know, I mean, there are all kinds of money to be made. Whether or not you are printing the textbooks or making the right films that get the, the, the imprimatur of the state. You know, all, all, for all of these reasons, people began to appreciate that there was value in reaching out to the state's notion of history and demonstrating how your views fit with that while obviously putting out your hand for whatever money could be placed there. Now, this, all of these processes come together in Ukraine. And I think this is why Ukraine, for so many reasons, as well as being a horrific war and so forth, is also a kind of true apotheosis of Putinism. The cherry-picking that we see, I mean, particularly but not exclusively in Putin's own um, rather ridiculous and ahistorical essays about why Ukraine isn't a real state and why it's actually truly part of, of, of Russia. I mean, it's worth noting that clearly there is also a, an equally uh, historically barren school of thought about why Ukraine has always been totally independent and why Russia is nothing to do with it. You know, obviously, in fact, it's a very complex and nuanced history. It is, in other words, a history which is rife with internal contradictions and double interpretations. But no, Putin wants something neat and simple that basically says Ukrainians, I mean, they're either Poles, Monkey on the sort of Catholic side of things, or else they're basically Russians, and that's why this is okay. The issue of the new nationalism, again, trying to essentially, when you don't have successes on the battlefield that you can really triumph and trumpet, or at least not convincingly, instead what you actually do is you appeal to this bastardized and largely rewritten history to try and give some sense that it is it is prideful, it is right and proper, it is our destiny at least to be trying. And yes, even if we're not winning at the moment, it's about the struggle rather than the outcome.
The business of thought control. Oh, well, precisely. Obviously, th this is this is a, an area in which, as we see, Putin's Russia sliding from authoritarianism into totalitarianism. I mean, it is clear that one of the one of the many ways in which that's manifest in the dramatically shrinking room for any kind of meaningful conversation about the historical relationship of Ukraine and Russia. Because obviously that, that immediately begins to unpick what is meant to be this, this seamless whole of, of the Putinist notion there. And so, you know, as a microcosm of, of wider issues in which whereby you, you do try to control any kind of debate in order to control people's political activity, history is clearly evident there. And then the history entrepreneurs. Well, I mean, you know, obviously we, we particularly see these sort of contemporary geopolitical entrepreneurs shouting and screeching their propaganda on TV. But I think, you know, more broadly, if, if one looks at, for example, the, the Russian press, the, the print slash online media, I think and it has more chance to be a little bit more thoughtful. But it can be quite interesting that the trend we've seen in arguments and articles and often quite sort of you know lengthy pieces sometimes looking at very very kind of specific individual cases and so forth but all of them trying to hammer home this notion that actually you know, the quote unquote reclamation of the Ukrainian lands is something which is historically mandated it is a destiny it is a necessity it would actually be a failure on the part of the Russians to shirk this duty. And Putin himself, when he um, famously and implausibly uh, paralleled himself with the distinctively tall Peter the Great, he made this point that you know, Peter the Great fought wars, but he didn't invade, he took back what was Russia's. And you know, he, he, he really should have just given a little nod and a wink to the camera at that point because it was pretty damn obvious what he was intending. Well, again, you know, we, we have all the attempts to mobilize history in order to try and convince Russians that however miserable it may be, they are expected to, by their own national story, to be supportive of this war. This must be a popular war. So I think this is, you know, all of these trends that we'd seen already evolving uh, under Putin have absolutely come to the fore with the Ukraine conflict and it demonstrates how the degree to which history is still very present in Russia and not just because of Putin's machinations but because Russia itself hasn't had a chance to truly metabolize its history. I mean from the, the degree of uh, collaboration with the Stalinist regime to actually how people reinvent their relationship with the Soviet Union when it collapsed all the way back, let alone when we start to layer in the issue of ethnic relationships and such like. I mean, I, I do despair at some of the discussion about decolonizing Russia, not A, because it manages to somehow bring together some sort of uh, fashionable buzzwords with this notion that, in fact, the, the non-Slavic peoples of this country are being kept there forcibly under the mailed fist of the Kremlin, which I absolutely don't believe is really true. I don't think there's any evidence of that. But you know, what it all says is precisely that Russia's history is complex, it's contradictory, it's dynamic. It sometimes is very much pushing reasons why this has been such a statist country with such a sort of strong, overweening central control. But 
as, as often as not, actually Russia's history is anarchic. It is a history of rebels and dissidents, of risings and civil wars. You know, ultimately, Putin cannot prevail against this. Putin's simplistic history reflects, I think, his simplistic understanding of his country and how he thinks he can actually control it. And if you would actually read some of that history that he quotes, or at least that his speech writers you know, provide for him, I think he would understand that. But to do that, I think he'd have to have a rather greater degree of self-awareness, let alone national awareness, than we've seen so far. So let me stop now, and then after the break, I will return to answering a few more patrons' questions. Just the usual reminder, you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. You can support it by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the show. Well, thank you for lasting through my rant on history, as I think you might gather. It's something I feel quite strongly about. So instead, what again, what I have is a cluster of patrons' questions, which I think sort of go together, and really are all talking about the, the impact of the war on Russia's economy, and as a result, its particularly regional political system. So to start with a question which, I mean, I hope the... Uh, questioner realises the degree to which there's no way I could actually properly answer this. What is the war really costing Russia in terms of military spending, damage to the economy, benefits to fighters, etc.? Well, look, again, the, the obvious answer is it's actually incredibly hard to quantify, even for people who understand anything at all about the economy. The sort of benchmark figure that is currently sort of doing the rounds is about $1 billion a day. Not all of which is actually on the war itself, one should stress, though. I mean, that also includes the non-military spending on propping up industries that are having trouble, benefits, etc., which probably count for at least, probably rather more than, but at least half of the total. Now, that's a lot of money, though it's worth noting that, the if, again, if, if one looks also in terms of infrastructural impact and so forth, the damage to Ukraine is about three to four times as much. I mean, in September, we had the estimate that the war up to that point had cost Ukraine, and by extension, it, its Western backers, at about a trillion US dollars. But overall, for Russia, I mean, look, I think the, the, the long-term impacts are clear. You know, we, we're seeing a, a dwindling of, of reserves, although, you know, on paper, the Russian economy hasn't been doing too badly because of, of the prices of exports, but its capacity to squeeze more out of, of Gazprom and so forth is declining. If one looks at uh, the overall sort of shape of the of the economic profile i mean you know we're seeing increasingly resources having to go directly into security and defense i mean actually if, if one looks at what's going on i mean we're talking about at least six percent of gdp and think about that i mean the nato sort of target that not all countries actually meet is two percent of gdp there's a big controversy in the uk as to whether or not it will actually 
continue with its stated aspiration of actually bringing this up to 3% of GDP. So, you know, this is pretty high. And frankly, even so, I suspect it understates it in that there's lots of, shall we say, military-related expenditure that is actually rolled into things like the education budget, especially now that they're bringing back military training within schools that will not appear on that tally. Now, before the war, the Russian economy was expected in the period 2022 to 23 to increase by 5%, whereas now... there's obviously various estimates, but essentially it's likely to instead decrease by the equivalent amount. But perhaps most important, I think, is, is the long-term scarring, which you know, is, a, is going to affect every aspect of the Russian economy, including particularly its position within the global economy. And as I've mentioned already, look, even if sanctions are lifted the day after tomorrow because shooting ends tomorrow, and neither of those is sadly at all possible, Well, even then, I mean, if one just even thinks about the credibility, who is going to want to invest for the long term in Russia, Um, especially not while this regime is is currently in place? No, I mean, I think the, the, the scarring will take a long, long time to recover. And I think we also have to think about... And you'll notice, I'm sure, the way I've I've pivoted from trying to give any kind of specific figure into safe generalities, but that's about the best I can offer. Um, But I think you also have to consider some of the more intangible long-term costs. We've got, for example, the brain drain. The people who have left the country and who at the moment show no great willingness to return. Now, at present, where have they gone? They've gone to Armenia, they've gone to Georgia, they've gone to Turkey. If they can afford it, they've gone to places like Dubai. They're obviously often, in many cases, looking to, to move on from beyond that. Now, the irony is that the ones who are most likely to be able to stay are precisely the ones who have transferable skills, who have accumulated resources, who have set up businesses or whatever. In other words, exactly the kind of people that Russia would want in order to rebuild its economy are those people who are most likely to be able to stay away. So this brain drain, again, is likely to be a long-term risk. And in due course, there may well be a wave of repats coming back. But again, they will only come back when they think it's safe and wise to do so. And it's, again, hard to see how that could be while Putin or a Putinoid is in the Kremlin. What else? Productivity. Again, I can't help but draw parallels with the Brezhnev era. And that's a period in which you know, there was clearly widespread demoralization of the Soviet population in the latter years, a sense that their social contract had been broken. But at the same time, there were no outlets for them to actually demonstrate that and do anything about it. The KGB, all the other apparatuses of control were still very powerful. And therefore, people found different ways, shall we say, of resisting. You can't go out on the streets. You can't strike. But what you can do is do a really half-assed job. You cannot bother. You can turn up late. You can end up taking a two-hour lunch break while you stand in line hoping for a little uh, portion of grey meat that can be dinner. You can turn up drunk. I mean, God, I still remember when I was doing my PhD and had a, a room close to the Zill car works of the time. And I'd be heading out to the Lenin Library sort of first thing in the morning about the same sort of time that the morning shift was coming on duty. 
And, and you would see people who are clearly almost unable to walk. At one point, there was like, I don't know, three or four workers all sort of basically in one unit with their arms around each other's shoulders because basically amongst them, they only seemed to have two working legs. They were staggering in to clock on for the start of their shift. Now, can one actually imagine that they were going to do any kind of decent amount of work? Of course not. But the point is, this was a kind of resistance that the state, frankly, found very difficult to do anything about. And Dropov would briefly try, but essentially, you know, it was just so passive in many ways as to be protected against the usual you know, instruments of a police state. So, look, people, I'm not saying necessarily we're going to see the same problem with, with alcoholism or the like, but that degree to which people won't really care about their day jobs, or they will treat it as an opportunity to, again, as in the sort of classic Soviet thing that you, if a light bulb blows in your flat, you just take the light bulb into work and swap it with a working one. Um, from there, you know, all that kind of thing. So pilfering, low productivity and such like, I suspect we may well see as a response to a sense that the state has broken its, its, its deal. And so, you know, it becomes a, a much, much broader issue about legitimacy. And then here we obviously we shade into the kind of political dimension. But in some ways, look, I think for all the, the rubles that will be lost for the regime, it is the political currency of legitimacy. That is, it is also squandering at an extraordinary level on this. Now, this links to again, a couple of other questions that I'll, I'll lump together. How will the shrinking economy affect relations between the regions and the centre and ethnic Russians and other ethnicities? And then, given the increasing burden on non-Moscow residents, Russia is starting to feel a bit feudal or a city-state compared with a feudal with a federation. Is this sustainable? Well, is this sustainable, that last point? Look, I mean, it is clear that there is a very, very strong regional dimension to the, the growing economic uh, woes of Russia. I mean, clearly, the, the whole country is being affected, but uh, and particularly sort of someone who does, one of the few people who do look at Russia's regional politics and regional e economy, Andras Tothsifra, I mean, he's noted the degree to which, for example, and by the way, follow his No Yardstick blog if you want stuff on regional politics. Um, but, you know, noted, for example, that one could look at wage arrears, which is a, you know, an endemic Russian problem that, again, is often a pretty good indicator of underlying overheating intentions within the economy. And, you know, there are some regions, Ingushetia, Kaliningrad, Leningrad region, Kaluga, where there is you know, much more of a wager is problem, which you know, does show something about the, the, the widening gap. And it's worth noting, after all, that with the exception of Ingushetia, these re are not necessarily regions that have also been forced to bear an undue burden of the war in terms of casualties. You know, to a large extent, especially in the earlier stages, one saw that disproportionate numbers of people from impoverished regions had signed up as volunteer soldiers before the war and therefore ended up fighting there. Now, on one level, look, that's not at all surprising. You know, if one looks at uh, soldiers in Western professional armies, you know, there are a damn sight more proportionately Geordies than Londoners in the British Army, and I dare say there are rather more American soldiers who come from Alabama than who come from upstate New York. So, you know, 
again, we, we, we should have a certain degree of uh, awareness that this is not necessarily entirely uniquely Russian, just as the degree to which Moscow and, to a slightly lesser extent, the cities of St. Petersburg are feather-bedded is not that unusual. You know, capital cities, major ec economic hubs tend to actually have their own continued privilege. So, you know, yes, there is a process going on. And yes, it does have a regional dimension, both in financial as well as, let's say, say, say in treasure and in blood is, is being paid. Now, what the impact will be, though, I think we can't at this say, stage sort of say is predetermined. So much of it will depend on how it is handled. And the degree to which there is a sensitivity of the, the, the regional, but and particularly the ethnic dimension of that. You know, because let's face it, even at the moment, there are already considerable degrees of cross-subsidies, of degrees in which actually federal funding does go to support some republics and other regions that absolutely need it. Now, it is by no means a transparent or totally equitable process, but it exists. And what that means is that the scope is there to actually make that more sensitive to the needs of the moment. It's interesting, we, know, we, we have a sense from the draft 2023 budget of the degree to which you know, there will be these federal subsidies, and clearly it's shrunk because everything is having to sub be subordinated to the needs of security in the war. But what we don't know is how that is going to be distributed. And this is why we have people like Kadyrov kicking off, because he wants to make damn sure that Chechnya doesn't, doesn't lose out. But anyway, so that's something that we, we still wait and see. And secondly, I mean, again, there is this degree to which actually so much will depend on how regional elites are persuaded or come to feel that their interests will, will play out in the longer term. I mean, regional elites after, are after all ambitious for their, you know, obviously their survival, but also their political and economic prosperity. And are they going to be convinced that in fact their future is with Moscow, in other words, doing everything they can to make the policy work, or that it will be despite or even against Moscow. And once again, we have an interesting Brezhnevian parallel here. Now, if one looks at so many of the regional elites in later Brezhnev era, essentially what happened is that as they came to realize, not appreciate, not, not really, as they came to realize that their chances of making it big in Moscow were diminishing, as they came to realize that uh, Moscow was being more and more selfish, and when I say Moscow, I mean, I mean both the city and the region and also the central government. Instead, what we got was the emergence of local cabals, in which you know, the local KGB chief, the local chief of police, the local party bosses, the local industrialists, who were increasingly interconnected through business deals, through marriage and such like in some ways conspired to rip off the centre as much as possible. And in some cases, this took truly epic forms, such as the huge scam whereby the Uzbek, Par Uzbek Republic party leadership you know, embezzled huge amounts of money from Moscow for non-existent cotton crops, to, you know, on the whole, it was much, much more local. But the main thing was, exactly, it included 
the very instruments that were meant to be there to make sure that everyone did what Moscow wanted. In other words, the KGB and the police. And what we've seen of late is that, in fact, there is diminishing social mobility within the FSB and the MVDR. In other words, the successors of the Soviet militia and the Soviet political police. Once upon a time, if you were an ambitious, say, you know, up-and-coming FSB officer, you might well think, well, look, you know, I, I will rise up to a pretty good place in the Republican or you know, local FSB hierarchy, and at some point I will you know, basically have kind of racked up enough brownie points and made enough contacts that I will get one of the jobs in Moscow, which is really where you want to be, totally different quality of life, opportunities, and so forth. And for a long time, that was indeed possible. So you have all these lean and hungry regional officers who see their future in Moscow. Now, what we've seen, and frankly, this is something that we've been seeing developing over the past 10 years, is increasingly the Moscow security elite looking to diminish social mobility because they want to place their own kids and their own clients in these plum jobs. So increasingly, if you are an ambitious regional FSB chick, then actually you're seeing your chances of making it big become increasingly small, unless you're very, very lucky, very good, or whatever. So, well, why not make a bit of money? Why not actually, you know, if you are stuck in, you know, whatever regional city of, of, of your choice, you know, you can still live pretty well if you've got the right friends, the right allies. Why not become part of one of these local cabals? I think that's going to be one of the really interesting and potentially uh, corrosive forces is if we really start to see that once again reasserting itself. Which means, because what it means is actually it's very hard for Moscow to know what the hell is going on, to know if there is a problem, let alone know what, what to do about it. So, you know, is this sustainable? I mean, it, it, it very, very much depends. We have seen signs of attempts to try and get the, the voice of the regions heard. And particularly this is through the State Council, and now we have this committee, which is led by Moscow Mayor Sabyanin, you know, one of the few regional leaders who really has muscle. Um, the question is, though, a, how far he will be willing to be, in effect, the voice of the disenfranchised regions, or how far, frankly, you know, he will want to protect a status quo, which actually benefits him and his city. And I think probably even more importantly, how far he is listened to. Will the Mishustins of this world, let alone Putin himself, actually realise that there is a problem? I mean, remember, Sabyanin was one of the very first people who was actually truly agitating about the need for a COVID strategy. And it actually did have some, some success in terms of actually pushing Putin into realising that he couldn't just ignore this problem. So it's not impossible that Sabyanin will do this. If I had to put money on it, though, I don't think he'll be successful. But nonetheless, that's something which we, we wait and see. And it leads me to the last question I want to tackle today, which is kind of intertwined with this. Are regional governors able to make any kind of a difference? Well, look, if we exclude a few figures like Kadyrov and Sabyanin, um, the, the answer is actually they can. But the point is we have to acknowledge the degree to which they have a whole variety of different roles. They are, first of all, Moscow's local foremen. They are the people there to basically keep the region quiet, keep its factories running, to keep its citizens voting the right way when it comes for elections. 
and now also increasingly crucial in the war effort, Mo making sure that the mobilization goes ahead, raising the so-called volunteer battalions, and more broadly, you know, with this sort of semi-martial law that has already been introduced, actually they will have a role in increasingly interfering in the local economy, intervening in the local economy, to keep the important, the militarily significant ones, parts of it, running whatever happens, which you know, may well actually mean addressing things like wage arrears, but it may well also mean things like suppressing strikes. And, look, you know, and we have seen that there has been a, a di distinct difference in how different regional bosses have handled these kind of challenges. Uh, I mean, if you've got, I don't know, someone like Tumen, there, when they saw that the mobilised reservists were having to basically buy their own kit, actually the Tumen administration stepped in to provide support to do, that, to do so. Whereas in Yaroslavl, they actually cut administrative jobs precisely to free up funds for expenses that were related to the mobilisation. Moscow provides direct economic support for those who've been mobilised. Other areas, like Bryansk, you know, provides nothing at all. So, you know, there is variations which is in part explained, can be explained by the state of the local budget, but is also in part explained by what the local governor wants to be. So, you know, how assiduous does he want to be in supporting Moscow's initiatives and putting local resources into that? Because his second role, and I'm saying he because, yes, they're he's. His second role is to be a local advocate, in some ways the, the trade union shop steward as well as the foreman, arguing for local needs, pushing for more resources and such like. Now again, this is going to be one of the particularly crucial areas when it comes to this 2023 budget. How much leeway will people be granted to be able to present themselves as champions of the locality against Moscow? Because the point is, on the one hand, that gives them a lot more local credibility, which in turn gives them more political traction, you know, their recommendation will be more likely to affect how people vote and the like. But on the other hand, it also will necessarily fuel this sense that the central government is failing the locality and not managing the economy well. So again, it's, it's going to be a really interesting and delicate balancing act. But the point is... You know, although there is always uh, a certain cohort of the so-called Variagi, the Varangians, again, you know, going, going, going back to Rurik, which is the term for you know, officials who've been parachuted in by Moscow, really just to be Moscow's enforcers, well, they actually find their lives very, very difficult unless they can build positive relations with the local elites. And again, I think in these heightened and tightened circumstances, that's going to be really difficult unless you're actually willing to go out for bat for them. Because in your third role, which is in some ways an extension of that, is sometimes to be the local protector. Sometimes you the person who doesn't necessarily stand up openly to Moscow, but works out the areas where in some ways the diktats and the rules can be bent, ignored, or finessed round. I mean, if one looks at it, you know, however the way things have gone more broadly, you know, Moscow Mayor Sabyanin has, or at least had in the past, had a certain role in moderating some of the more bloodthirsty instincts of the security apparatus. Elsewhere, if one looks at the North Caucasus, 
I mean, in fact, they have clearly acted, you know, the lo local governors and, and so forth have clearly often acted as protectors of corrupt local interests against the control mechanisms from Moscow. So, you know, it very much depends on who you want to protect. But nonetheless, there is that sense that they also can dispense a certain amount of krisha, a certain amount of protection. But, of course, the final point is that these are all, on the whole, careerists. Now, they may or they may not be thinking again of Moscow as where they want to go, but basically they, they want to prosper. They want to stay in position. They want to be able to give jobs to their cronies and their kids and such like. They want to have enough time to be able to skim off as much money as possible. And again, maybe they, they actually have wider ambitions. You know, the one who is always mentioned, and by me as, amongst as others, because we're so unimaginative, you know, is Alexei Dumin in Tula, who, depending on who you believe, is being framed as anything but from the next president to the next prime minister to the next defense minister to whatever else. But the point is, you know, there, there are other regional leaders who are able to then make it big in Moscow. But then there are also regional leaders who their career actually means that they have to be defending themselves. And here we have Beglov in St. Petersburg currently being assailed by Prigozhin as well as despised by large numbers of his own constituency. You know, whatever their relationship with their region, they also have their own political interests. And so, yes, governors do make a difference. They make a difference in how effectively Moscow's instructions and decrees are applied how broadly they are applied, whether they are in fact distorted for local interest or purely the self-interest of the governor in question and, and his cronies. And in some ways, I think one of the, this goes back to a point I made earlier, one of the crucial failures of late Putinism is to precisely not consider the regional factor enough and in particular that means the governors and mayors. You know, these are the frontline fighters defending the system and these are also increasingly being marginalized they're being assessed by you know quotas they are being given you know dic decrees and diktats from the center and not being listened to and they are on the other hand one of the few people who can actually tell putin tell moscow what is going on in this country and i think there's been this uh, interesting kind of in some ways, it's a sort of return to Soviet notions that everything can be turned into metrics and mathematics. And this idea that somehow you can genuinely know what's going in your, in, on in your country so long as you have enough data. And that data is essentially numerical. And, you know, in part, this is actually Mishustin's doing. This whole techno-authoritarianism line of his very much relies on the idea that, you know, if, if we have the numbers, we understand the country. Well, personally, I would say there is also a qualitative and human dimension. But also, the whole thing is, if you lose the regions and the regional governors and the regional control structures, then probably, as the Soviets discovered, the numbers you will be getting are absolute nonsense. And therefore, so too will be your algorithmic conclusions. So the regional dimension and the human dimension both matter one hell of a lot. Thanks very much indeed. I don't think there will be a podcast next weekend, which is right after Thanksgiving. There might be a little something for patrons, but otherwise, you know, odds are the next podcast you can expect in a couple of weeks' time. Thank you, as ever, for listening. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. 
Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash Shadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. Только будь, пожалуйста, со мной.